0: It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.
1: You are Locked On Rays, your daily Tampa Bay Rays podcast. Part of the
0: Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.
1: Welcome to another edition of the Locked on Rays podcast, part of the Locked on Podcast Network. You can subscribe to Locked on Rays on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Odyssey, and online at fanstreamsports.com. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Locked on Rays, and you can email us, lockedonrays at gmail.com. Okay, we continue part three of our conversation with Tampa Bay Area author and writer Michael Lortz, who is also an expert on the Tampa Bay Rays stadium and attendance issue. Without further ado, here's part three of that interview. Another issue with the whole stadium attendance issue factor is the fact of lack of corporations in the Tampa Bay Area, right? Isn't that a huge Reason for why I mean a, a large
0: portion of the stadium is empty night in night out. So absolutely, and we'll get back to one of these numbers that people have been throwing around for eight, eight to ten years, and I'm not sure the updated validity of it. Validity mm. of it, but corporate ticket sales, and this was again this is like a 2012 number, um, where are typically 66% of most teams ticket sales. Um, you're selling boxes, you're selling to corporate ticket packages. You know it could be in the bleachers, but. You know, ex corporations buying 10, 20 seats for all their employees. Mm-hmm. Um, in Tampa Bay, for the raise, that was closer to 33%. So it was flipped. You have the fan base responsible for 66% of the ticket sales instead of 33% of the ticket sales in most major metropolitan areas. So I know St. Pete has increased their business um, environment there. I know. You know, there's a lot more businesses in St. Pete and there's a little bit more um, population in St. Pete. So has that number changed at all? Um, I don't – wouldn't think so. I'd be given the – you know, you were at the game last week, less than 5,000 people. So that's going to show you that how many of those are walk-ups, how many of them are season ticket holders, and how many of them are corporate season ticket holders. So say 3,000 of them were season ticket holders or let's say even 4,000. They five, say the Rays draw 5,000 people and 4,000 of them are season ticket holders. So that means the Rays season ticket holder base is only 4,000 people. So that means in a game against, say, the Yankees where they draw 20,000, 16,000 of them came from non-season ticket holders. That is a huge amount to be relying on on a daily basis. So that means the Rays will never get under 4,000 tickets because they've already sold those tickets from now until October. So their attendance... So if it, if it is 4,000, the Rays will always have an attendance of 4,000. There will never be a day where no fans show up. It will always be 4,000 people. Whether or not they, they go through the turnstiles is a totally different story. But the Rays have guaranteed 4,000 sales from now until September. And that's what I'm guessing based on attendance from last week. Now, how many of those are corporate? Say 1,000. Say if the Rays are sold 3,000, he froze up on me. Okay no you know no I'm looking at your fan behind you sometimes because when you freeze up the fan stops moving and I'm like oh okay good then then I know you haven't froze up you're you're still with me. I'm with um, you yeah continue. Awesome. So you think about it 4000 season tickets. Say 2000 of those are corporate, 2000 of those are individuals. That means the reason we're only selling 2000 season tickets to corporations that's pathetic. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just now, does that mean that they need to increase their ticket marketing staff to get out there and shake hands and make deals? Maybe, you know, maybe they need to increase their season ticket sale sellers or their season ticket package people. Maybe they need to increase business relations. Maybe they need to increase marketing. And these are things that the fan base has constantly said about the race. You're not marketing enough. You're not doing enough to get us to want to go to the stadium more than just putting a winning team out on the field. And we know you've put a winning team out on the field. You've put a winning team out on the field since 2008, by and large, a couple off years. But by and large, it's been 10 years of success. What else are you doing to draw us? You know, and same thing with uh, with corporate. What advantages are the Rays giving a corporation to say, hey, you know what? Everybody, we got tickets to go to the Rays game this Friday or whatever, you know, uh, the CEO bought us all, Tickets, or we're bringing clients to the game, or, or whatever, you know, whatever reasons corporations buy these tickets, even whether they could be small, it can be a law firm of two people that just buys, just owns box seats somewhere, or they could be, um, J Bill or Tech Data or some of our other major Fortune 500 companies. What does their package look like? Do they just, you know, how do you increase their investment? in the, in raise season ticket or in raise season tickets. So again, 4,000 people, that means only 4,000 season tickets. That's not very good. Get on the ball, raise. Let's do what's, you know, or what, so I've always been curious to what feedback, what feedback are clients getting for why they're renewing, why they're stepping away from season ticket packages, you know, has that number decreased? Did, were there usually, were there at some point 8,000 season ticket holders? And now there's four. Now with people and families, you could probably say COVID and maybe COVID prevented a lot of businesses or buys these tickets this year. Mm -hmm. What about the packs? Maybe they were only, you know, the rates were under 5,000 or under 6,000 a couple of seasons ago. So have they not picked up their season? You know, what, what, what were season ticket sales at that point? Mm-hmm. Because if you're only getting 6,000 people into the drop on a Tuesday night against the Blue Jays in May or whatever, maybe you only have 5,000 season ticket holders. Again, corporate plus fans, that's not very good. What are you going to do? In 2010, what were your corporate season tickets? I would love to see that number. Now, mm-hmm. it's not something that the Rays are ever going to make public because that's somewhere in their marketing departments. And the Rays have no, no reason to make that public. But I'd love to see it. I'd love to see where, what years season tickets have gone up, what years season tickets have gone down, and maybe try to apply environmental um, things like COVID and the recession and all these things to that. Say, okay, well, that's why you fell here. Well, let's get more people on the street shaking hands, making deals to get that season ticket number back up.
1: We've told you before, Built Bar is the greatest protein bar on the planet, and they've got so many different flavors as well. Coconut, cherry, raspberry, mint brownie, double chocolate, the list goes on and on. And what's great about Built Bar is their macros uh, and the fact that they're uh, great tasting as well. But 17 to 18 grams of protein, calories ranging from 130 to 180, just 4 to 5 grams of sugar and just 4 to 5 grams of net carbs. Amazing flavors, all tasty and all healthy as well. We know you want some Built Bar, so go to built.com use promo code locked15 l o c k e d 1 5 and that'll get you 15% off your order use promo code locked15 for 15% off at built.com how difficult and maybe this is something chicken or the egg sort of a deal but you know when the rays have consistently and continually traded their superstar players whether we can talk about whether it's the right or wrong decision as far as making your team base, uh, uh, making your baseball team better. But when you trade Evan Longoria, when you trade Blake Snell, when you trade name after name, after name, or let name after name, after name, go in free agency, there's not that rooting interest or that tie of face of the franchise. I have to go and, and watch Longoria. I have to go and watch my favorite player because in a year, two years—I mean, who knows how much longer? You know, building that that goodwill and, and building that familiarity of having, you know, the familiar familiar names in a Rays uniform—is that a factor at all with with this?
0: I think so. I think so. But if you look at a lot of teams, I mean, the Red Sox traded Mookie Betts. Yeah. I mean, how many players actually stay with teams their whole career now? More than say Longo stayed with the Rays. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd love to see a chart and I mean, I, I could do the data, but I'd love to see a chart of the average duration t- a player stayed with every team over the last say We'll go back to say 2005, say the last 16 years or last 15, 16 years. How long is, and, and maybe even take away outliers, like take out, take away backup catchers and take away middle relievers because those positions yeah. rotate every year anyway. So take, just your your starting lineup. So just take the starting lineups, or the the person that played the most positions, or most games at each position every year for every team. How often do starters move, rotate or move to another teams And have the Rays do do the Rays do an average of two years per player per starter? Because nobody's favorite again, nobody's favorite player is the backup catcher or the middle reliever. So we'll take those those kind of fluid positions away. But do the Rays' starting nine or the person that played the most games in 162 games, do they last two seasons? Do they last three seasons and you now take the pirates, the brewers, the Yankees, you know, we're not going to sign people to 10 year contracts like Francisco Indoor or somebody like that for the Mets. You know, we're just not going to give that kind of deal, but is Francisco Windor really going to play all 10 seasons for the Mets and is he gonna be productive? Again, you know, we're hacking to mm-hmm. the productivity thing. But in year seven, eight, nine, and ten, is Francisco andor an attraction to get fans to City Field. You know, Pete Alonzo, you can lock him up for 10, 15 years again, another one. But he's only been with the team with the Mets for I think this is his fourth year, third year, something like that. So again, I'd love to see that chart that says how long teams keep starting keep their their most frequent players on the field and starting pitchers as well. We could probably throw starting pitchers in there as well. At least your top two or three starters, because your fourth and fifth starters are probably a little bit more fluid between minor leaguers and journeymen and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So between your top three starters and your starting nine and your average starting nine, you know, how often do teams rotate those players? I would I, I don't think the Rays are as far off as people think. Like I they're not shipping everybody out every year. Yeah. You know, and and I'm yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. And I also look at the people that the razor brought recently are real character guys. And I think the G man choice, Brett Phillips, I love Brett Phillips. Brett Phillips is not the best. He's not an Mm all-star. Like he's got some great key hits and, you know, a couple of grand slams and game winning hits in world series. And he, he's the kind of guy you want to just keep around, but He's not, but the moment Brett Phillips' skill set starts to diminish, you got to just maybe offer him to be a coach or something because you want to keep him in the organization. But Brett Phillips on paper is a replaceable part. But the same thing with Timmy and Choi, but both of those guys bring so much chemistry to the clubhouse and fans get. Can or are interactive with both of these two guys, and, and there's others, there's plenty of others. But G Man and Brett Phillips are probably the two that, that are above and beyond. But if the Rays all of a sudden swooped in and were like, Hey, we traded Brett Phillips for a bag of peanuts and a double A middle reliever, the fans would be pretty pissed off.
1: Right. And kind of tying into that a little bit, do you have an idea as to how profitable, how much money? the Rays franchise has right now, what they're valued at? Because we always get questions about the payroll and how low the payroll is. I didn't know if you had any idea of, you know, the Rays could spend, they could have a payroll of $90 million, $100 million and still be very, very comfortable. Do you have any thoughts or ideas on that?
0: See, that's a tough question because a lot of what people base franchise valuations on is what Forbes puts out. Mm-hmm. And Forbes says the raise, I think, were either 800 or a billion. I think the raise topped a billion this year. Um, and so Sternberg only bought them for like oh, 200 million or something. So you got to figure Sternberg's making such a profit on this team, you know, if he were to sell tomorrow. But the, the problem with Forbes is it's just kind of a guess based on their guess, their previous guesses, and all what they think are open. I mean, these are all. They're not public franchises. They're not like city hall that has to publish a budget every year. So you, we don't know technically how much money the Rays are bringing in every year. We can kind of guess based on average ticket sales and the the um, cable contracts and everything else, and we can kind of say, okay, the Trope takes this much to operate every year, security and all this stuff, and this many employees at this much per hour and all that stuff. We can kind of ballpark it. And then, you know, there's revenue sharing, major league baseball still does revenue sharing. And so we can kind of get a ballpark on how much the raise might bring in. And then we look at their payroll and it's in the sixties and seventies and say, Oh, well, you know what they can afford to bring in a Nelson Cruz for the duration of a season or whatever. And then the Rays can say, well, we have $5 million extra million to pay for somebody for the rest of the season, whatever. I don't know. And I always feel weary making those guesses because mm-hmm. it, it's hard for me. And one of the things I actually asked Brian all once is I said, the Rays are valued at, say, a billion dollars. Well, then you guys got a billion dollars. Just put that billion dollars into building a stadium. And he was like, if you own a house that's a $200,000 house – you can't leverage that and buy a two hundred thousand dollar car. Like you have to, you have to get the loan, and no bank is gonna. You're not gonna leverage your entire, your entire house to buy an, another house. I mean, a car is a fleeting asset, but another house is another investment. You're not gonna leverage entirely leverage one house. The bank's not gonna give you a two hundred thousand dollar loan on your two hundred thousand dollar house to go buy another house. They're gonna want hey, you know, like you're just not gonna get that. So the raise can't. More basically, mortgage their entire franchise value to buy, you know, buy buy a stadium. Same thing with payroll because you could say, Oh, the Rays are a billion dollar team, then why don't they have a hundred million dollar payroll? And it's like, Well, that's the value, that's not money in the bank. How much money do they actually have in the bank? I don't know. You know, Mm -hmm. I think they're profitable. TV and, and everything like that, no team is going out of business. I think if you look at what team was it that oh i think somebody tweeted out that the padres were losing money this year and people are like no the padres are always profitable maybe day to day they look like they're not profitable because they only drew 5000 fans or 10000 fans but when you bring in all the other things all the tax breaks all the the cable pack you know the cable revenue and all mm-hmm. these things Billionaires don't own assets that lose money or they sell that like they they're, Again, you got to kind of get into that billionaire. And, and again, I don't even know if Stu Sternberg's a billionaire, by the way, people say he's a billionaire. Yeah. I'm assuming he's a billionaire. What, how much money does Stu Sternberg have? Is he closer to 900 million, 800 million? I know we're, you know, semantics here. He's, he's a team, He's a sports franchise owner. He has a, <laughs> he has bags of money. Yeah, but is he a billionaire? I mean, we can point to Jeff Bennick and be like, "That's a billionaire. He owns all these buildings and, and a sports franchise, and uh, it was a I forget what investment firm he ran." I mean, is Stu Sternberg really a billionaire? I I'm just gonna run with it, right? Because they say he is. So yeah, I, again, I'm not I'm not his accountant. I'm sure he has an accounting staff. I'm sure he doesn't do his taxes himself.
1: That is true. Good point. Um, Michael, before we move on, I do want to talk about and mention your book as well. Before that, to kind of put a bow on this thing, what do you consider to be the biggest misconception or biggest misunderstanding about the whole Rays
0: attendance and stadium issue? Um, inside or outside Tampa Bay, it's location. Okay. I, I feel like we are winning that battle over the last 10 years because I feel like you're starting to get most of the mass media, or at least most, most of the baseball media, to say the trop is a dump. It's in a bad location. And, you know, you can fill them in on the story that St. Pete bought cheap wine in a poor neighborhood, all that stuff. So I do think inside baseball circles, we're, we are winning that narrative. Right, we've convinced them over the last 10 years that it's not the fan base's fault. There are bridges and traffic. And not a lot of people in the 30-minute radius. I was so happy somebody made a – I don't know if you saw it on Twitter. Somebody made a graphic based on a paragraph of an article that I wrote years ago. I saw that, and my face just lit up. I was like, there's the link to my my work. Somebody put that – something that I wrote for Fangraphs, which I've written about, I think, 10 articles or so for Fangraphs just on the raised demographics and uh, stadium things. And uh, the fate, uh, the future of the franchise, that type of stuff. So, if you guys get a chance, you know, Google my last name L O R T Z, FanGraphs, and you'll it'll bring at least one of them up. So, I think FanGraphs has been a big plus there. I mean, I was able to convince a lot of the baseball analytical community, and then once you get the baseball analytical analytical community on board. Most of the baseball media stands to fall on board. Mass media, some of your average talking heads on talk radio and your nightly news, uh, your local news, sportscasters and beyond, you know, out there in, in major sports media land. We still have a lot of work to do in regards to them understanding Tampa Bay. It's getting there slowly but surely. Outside of Tampa Bay, just the average – now, as for the average fan understands location, the average fan also doesn't doesn't understand the business side of it. Mm. And I don't expect the average fan to understand the business side of it. You know, business degrees help, cool, sure. But the average fan isn't going to care. They just want a place where they could go get a beer, a hot dog, and root for their favorite team. Like, they don't care – how much money the owner makes, or you know things like that. But the the average fan also doesn't want to be priced out. The average fan doesn't want to spend two hundred dollars a ticket, you know, in a, for a bleacher sheet. So there is some expectations on travel and expectations on cost for the average fan. So they, does that kind of answer your question? I it think? does.
1: No, it's good. It's good. I like that answer. Um, okay. It's that time of year again, and all eyes are now turning to football as teams are back on the gridiron to start the football season. As always, Bet Online is your number one spot for all the pro and college football action this year. Be sure to take advantage of their opening day super promo. Make a bet on the Thursday, September 9th season opener between the Super Bowl champion Buccaneers and the Dallas Cowboys. And if you lose, your wager will be refunded up to $25 for new customers only when signing up and using promo code NFL100. Bet Online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all of your favorite sports, from football, basketball, boxing, right to your favorite Vegas casino games. Don't wait and take advantage of all the great offers available for the 2021 season. And remember, use the promo code LOCKEDON, L-O-C-K-E-D-O-N, to receive a 100% welcome bonus. Again, promo code on, that online, your online sportsbook experts. You can save time and money when using Rock Auto. Why choose to spend 30, 50, even 100% more for the same parts from a chain store or car dealership? Rock Auto is a family business serving do-it-yourselfers for over 20 years, and their prices are reliably low for every customer. They have everything you could need, brake parts, tail lamps, motor oil, even new carpet. So go explore their easy-to-use website today to find the solution to your auto part needs. And go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. And remember to write locked on in their how-did-you-hear-about-us box so they know we sent you to the right place. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car, Will ever need rockauto.com. I do want to learn about your new book, Curveball at the Crossroads. First off, what inspired you and what can people expect? And I guess how they can find
0: it or or the best way to access the book as well. Sure, sure. Um, Great story about the book. So, and it kind of falls into current events that is way not raise related. So, um, I work full-time as a government contractor out of McDill Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. And in 2012, I went to Afghanistan for a year. Um, I was just working some government contracts in a headquarters building that has since, and again, don't want to go down this path, but that building's no longer uh, U.S. forces. Let's just say U.S. military are no longer in that building. And, um, and when I watched the news, I'm like, yeah, that place looks familiar. Um, you know, so Watching the news has been kind of interesting over the last mm. two weeks. In that regard, anyway, I was in Afghanistan in 2012 to 2013. Missed baseball so much, and the time difference, you know, no, not to mention the internet connection. I wasn't up to date. You know, I was I was falling behind for the 2012-2013 season uh, in baseball. So I just decided I always wanted to write a book. And so I just started writing this book. It was about skee-ball and it was about just, just this weird stuff. And a sub story of that came to be about a baseball player who makes a deal with the devil, hurts his arm and makes a deal with the devil to get back in the game. And that from that little sub story, kind of a five page kind of just jotted notes turned into a 270 page novel. I ditched all the other ideas. And I said, this, this, I can run with this. I, I I know baseball well enough. It's not this this is coming to me so easily right now. This little subside short story is a full-fledged thing. I sent the five page story to a couple of friends and they were like, this is novel. Like this, you've got to flesh this out. So every night I'd get off of work. I'd work for about 12 hours out there. And I would go home, I'd go to the gym for a little bit, you know, maybe hit the treadmill, get my mind off of work, and then I'd go into my little tent and I would punch out about a page or two every night. I had an outline of where the main character was going and, and everything. And I would just do a page or two every night in my little tent in Afghanistan. And I wrote this book. So I came back from Afghanistan about 2013 and it was just a mess. It was just your rough notes. And anybody, nobody can ever say that they wrote a novel first draft. You know, anybody that says they wrote an article first draft is lying. No, less a novel. So it took me a couple of years to edit it. I mean, I went through page by page. And just rewrote the entire thing. Um, I went to grad school at the time and then just put it down, stayed on a hard drive for a little while when the pandemic hit in 2020, again, no baseball. So I picked it back up. I was like, this thing's good. It just needs a new ending. I rewrote the ending, pitched it to a bunch of publishers and I went to Florida local publishers. So I pitched it to a guy in Orlando, in the Orlando area. And he's like, I can print it. So I was like, great. Come to find out though that he's not the most author friendly publisher Um, I currently have some, some things working there. I can't really get into the depth of the story. Perhaps later on, we could talk about this, but we ended up printing only 200 books, about 225 after some online sales. Mm -hmm. So I have about 80 books left and we've kind of broken our agreement with him to, Hey, you don't print anymore. I'm self-publishing from here on out. Um, because the book real short, the book was never put on digital. And I, we talked about doing an audio book and it was never put on audio um amazon the 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 listing wasn't the way i wanted to to read Mm -hmm. and so it wasn't the most author friendly relationship so we're breaking that contract with him we're going to self-publish it i've got a brand new cover i've tweeted it out a bunch Uh, i love it the new cover was drawn by a guy if you so it was uh, drawn by a guy named mojo hand so the book, and the reason I went to this author, and I'll get to the subject of the book, it is a very blues influence, blues crossroads, deal with the devil, Robert Johnson mm. type of book. I'm a big blues, I'm a big music fan, period. Whether it be rock or blues or hip-hop or I even get into some jazz and stuff like that. Like I'm always listening to something, some reggae, whatever, whatever's on my mind that day, I'm listening to it. Huge music fan. So the blues to me has always been something that I've really kind of been attracted to. The uh, the tormented they deal with the devil thing, and those you you see that in on a lot of other cultures. You see that in shows like Supernatural, um, where you know people make deals with the devil and they sell their souls. Uh, it's an old German folktale as well. Dmx actually rapped about it quite a bit that his soul was being tormented and stuff. So you see it in so many genres, but in America, it really oriented with the African American community, the blues, in the, in the in the rural South. So my the, the athlete in my book is African-American. He makes a deal with the devil in a rural Mississippi crossroads. The devil makes his arm never hurt again. And he was a high school phenom thrown in the 90s in high school. So his arm gets better and it's, it never hurts. So he can go out there and be. it's realistic. I mean, he has to develop a curveball, you know, so he has to develop pitching because, you, as you know, getting into the major leagues throwing 100 miles an hour, you're not going to strike everybody out. Mm. You have to develop location and control. And so he does develop as a pitcher throughout the book. So I'm definitely not spoiling anything. So it is realistic in that regard. He's not, um, he's not unhittable, but he does have his moments of magic in regards to his arm, never hurting things like that. Well, with every deal with the devil, the devil comes back and says, Hey, it's time for you to pay up. Mm. Uh, you know, so, And there is a lot of Tampa. So the book takes book starts in rural Mississippi, but it takes place in Tampa. So he plays for the St. Pete saints because I thought that was just an awesome feedback. He made me deal with the devil. He plays for the saints. Really cool feeling right there. Um, he does, um, he, there's a championship in the, in the game, in the, in the book, definitely not a spoiler by any stretch of the imagination, um, he is, does become an ace pitcher for the St. Pete Saints. So super excited about that. Um, there's some other – he spring trains in the Tampa Bay area. So I'll talk about spring training and everything like that. So there's, there's a big – if you're a Tampa Bay baseball fan, you will really like this book because of the fact that it feeds on so much of write what I know. You know They, they, they right. tell authors, write the experience that you're familiar with. I'm familiar with some Tampa Bay baseball. So mm-hmm. I'm familiar with spring training. So I put those, those elements in there. And so he does come down to Tampa Bay. Um, there's some beach bar scenes involved where he kind of has a day off and he goes to a beach bar and Clearwater beach, you know, so there's definitely some elements of Tampa Bay in the book. So, so far it's got some really good reviews. Uh, ben Montgomery of formerly of the Tampa Bay Times, Axios, Tampa Bay. Uh, he's put out some great books that Oprah's recommended, things like that. He just gave me a, a board yesterday. So, Really appreciate Ben Montgomery. Um, I sent him a copy of the book. He he sent me back a blurb. Uh Jay Busby of Yahoo Sports was one of the first people to send me a blurb to talk about how, how what he thought about it. Uh Bill Chastain, who used to write for MLB.com, covered the raise. He and I had like an hour-long talk about the book. He really enjoyed it, wrote me a, a nice uh review about the book as well. So uh and so where you can find the book now. And I know we're running out of time. We only get about five minutes, I believe. Mm-hmm. So where you can find the book now is unfortunately only through mid, because we're changing publishers and I'm self-publishing it right now. The second edition of the book is being assembled. So I have a freelancer kind of formatting all the text, you know, page numbers and the size of the fonts and all that stuff. She should be finished in mid September. So I hope to have the book relisted on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, other online vendors by the beginning of October. And then hopefully I will have boxes of the new edition. The, the, the original edition, I only have 80 prints left. And they, they market for 20 bucks. And the second edition, I'm actually putting a little cheaper because they're going to be print on demand. I'm not going through the publisher. So if people want to hold out for the second edition, it'll be a little cheaper. But the first edition is $20 because that's what the publisher's cost was. I'm just trying to recoup my money on 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 the print cost for the first book. So he charged me, unfortunately. So I got to do 20 bucks. Um, it's a really good book, though. Everybody, like I said, has has read it. So the first print has an has will have a first cover. The second print, which is going to be print on demand, is going to have a totally different cover. So if you're kind of a collector of baseball books, you might want the first edition. I will sign every book anybody wants. You know, I'll sign it, whatever. I'll put a little dedication to anything like that. I've been outside of Tropicana field a few times um, and done a radio show with um, St. Pete sports connection. He's been nice enough to have me on and Ferg's has been nice enough to set me up with a table outside. Mm. So I've done some sales there um, right outside of Ferg's. I will put out on Twitter when that's going to happen again. And so if somebody shows up, uh, I can do cash app and Venmo and a lot of other fun online stuff. So I'm super excited about the second edition of the book because that'll be more available in more platforms. We should have that on ebook and audio eventually too. I'm contacting a company that does, has, hires actors to do uh, audio Super excited. And so I consider the first edition as quite, sort of like a trial run just to get reviews and anybody who's kind of a collector of baseball books. So, but other than that, like, so that's the story. Um, curveball at the crossroads. I appreciate you letting me uh, let me talk about that. For of course. Bit. No,
1: I, I appreciate it. That's great. And yes, everybody check out the book and and uh, it's crossroads.com is, you know, a way to go as well. And, and check out um, yes. Michael on, on Twitter as well too, with that one final question, Michael, because you've also, this isn't your only work that you've done. You've also, if I'm correct here, written about, the life of minor league baseball players. Correct. I mean, you've done some like excerpts and sure, things of I that did. nature. Okay. I, I just wanted to, you know, if you had a, the, the biggest takeaway that you learned from that experience of talking to all these minor league players, coaches, executives, and so forth of, man, I really learned this is what life in the minor leagues is like sort of the
0: deal. Probably the biggest thing I learned was the grind. the grind. And, you know, the the dedication and minor league baseball is small. Well, before major league baseball basically bought out minor league baseball. Mm -hmm. I love the creativity. I love minor league baseball. Like minor league baseball is so much fun when you can spend five bucks on a ticket and go out there and have a beer and just watch and really don't care because you're not really emotionally invested in the team. You're not super emotionally invested in the players. You want the players to move up on, you know, So because I saw this guy in double A, whatever, but you're there just for baseball and you're there just for the experience. And you're there to watch a great play and a great double play and a great catch out in the outfield or a home run and stuff like that. But you really don't tie, you really don't tie emotions of minor leagues to players. Mm-hmm. You do somewhat to fans to, to teams. If you're a Durham Bulls fan or a Clearwater Threshers fan, but you don't really tie it to players as much as you just tie the emotion to a baseball to base for baseball's sake. And I feel like minor league baseball is a little bit more pure in that regard. It's more like mm-hmm. watching college basketball, um, which yes, it's big business and all that stuff. But, and in both cases, both athletes probably do need to be paid more minor leaguers probably should make more money. College basketball players need to make more money. We need to make money period. That's a whole nother conversation, but there's a purity to minor league baseball that I just really, they, there's also a creativity to it. At least there was where, Hey, we're going to have um dress up in funny nose glasses night because why not? We're going to wear, wear, wear your craziest hat night to the ballpark and get in for free night because why not? So I just, I love the creativity and that was my favorite part about talking to front office people is kind of pick their brains about creativity and, and sort of like just that we do what we got to do to just, be relevant, you know, to just get people to the ballpark. And I feel like that some of the ways the Rays don't do that. The Rays actually just follow the stereotype for major league baseball marketing. And, but at the same time, emphasize that we are not a typical major league market. We have two Metro areas, a Bay in the middle bridges, all this stuff. But yet the Rays don't ever really do minor league marketing. Mm -hmm. it's like, Hey, wear a crazy hat, get into the trap for free or get into the trap. Or wear, you know, uh, a raised cape and dress up like uh, dress up like Raymond and get in for half price, you know, something like that. Like, why not just throw every idea at the wall because that's what minor league baseball does. And sure, other people will be like, that's a minor league gimmick. But you know what? If it brings fans into the stands, you know, one of the um, people that I, I I always wanted to interview, one of the other writers that I uh, wrote with, interviewed Mike Vec. So Mike Beck, longtime minor league baseball promoter, uh, the son of Bill Beck, who was a baseball promoter for the white, a baseball owner for the White Sox, I think of the Indians as well. Um, but Mike Beck has this idea that just make baseball fun. And so one of his ideas, he worked for the, he worked for the Rays for, I want to say like 99, 2000 era. And one of his things was, why don't we paint the, paint the turf purple <laughs> and people were like, why? It has to be green. He's like, why does it have to be green? We can have the only purple stand or only purple field and we can change the color of the grass if we want it. We can make it red and blue and green, you know, like Boise's, uh, university of Boise's football team plays on a blue field. Why not have the color of the grass at the Trop, especially when it was, you know, I mean, it's turf. Why not paint it yellow? Why not paint it purple? And people are like, that's minorly gimmicky and he's like, why can't we do this? Why can't we think out of the box? So I've always thought, I don't know what that guy's doing now if he's still involved in minor leagues, but I always thought the Rays need to just be like, hey, help us out. Like we will give you the reins to marketing and just make it as crazy gimmicky as you want. We don't care what you got to do, but get fans in the house in into the drop on Tuesday against the Royals in July. Help us out.
1: Mm. And it's called the Bus Leagues Experience, Minor League Baseball Through the Eyes of Those Who Live It. And it's a, still available in paperback and people can find it on it Amazon um, and other places? So I'm
0: not sure who makes the money on that, honestly. Okay. Because I wrote for a website called Bus Leagues Baseball, which since went out of went out of existence. And we wrote and we interviewed – all these interviews take place I think between like 2009 and 2012. So somewhere in there, I have, I interviewed Matt Harvey when he was a minor leaguer, uh, Alex Colme when he was a minor leaguer, uh, who else did I inter- interview that made it? Some other folks, uh, Travis Darno, Travis Darno was in there somewhere, uh, because one of our writers was a New England guy and he was playing for the New Britain or the new, the New Hampshire team for the Blue Jays. Mm-hmm. Um, who else is in there? I'm trying to think who, um, I thought I read John Eric Votto- Cosmer maybe. Eric Hosmer's in there. Yep. I did not do the Eric Hosmer interview because the Royals don't have a team here. Um, We had four people all over the country and they would just go to their minor league teams. And again, between 2009 and 2012 and interview minor leaguers, executives. I interviewed the president of minor league baseball, which was a fantastic interview. If you're ever interested in how minor league baseball operates, because minor league baseball is also responsible for the winter meetings. And that's something that a lot of people don't know. Major League Baseball does not put on the winter meetings. That's hosted by Minor League Baseball because they do the big job fair. So And so Minor League Baseball actually puts on the – and so we talked about putting on the winter meetings. We talked about franchises and, and all these things that how does Minor League Baseball operate. And again, unfortunately, Major League Baseball last offseason fought what Minor League Baseball's labor contract, I think, expire or franchise contracts expire. And so, major league baseball runs minor league baseball now, which I think is such a shame. You know, if you look at all the bad things, the things minor league, uh, major league baseball's done. You know, swindled out minor league baseball, the tops, the fanatics baseball card thing. I feel like minor league, uh, major league baseball is just really shaking up its tradition for no, for just no, no reason lately, and it's it's it, it hurts the game. I think in the long run, it hurts our traditions and our long term marketability. Um, but no, really fascinating interviews. Those, those I think are like five bucks or five to seven dollars. I think mm-hmm. I again, I'm not sure who makes that because it was the guys that ran Bus Leagues Baseball who put all those interviews in a book and published it on Amazon. And our goal was to just raise money. And, and like, I think it was ended up going to a charity at some point. But the founders of the website, I think, make if, if little known fact, Amazon makes 50%. On all book sales, so if you buy the book for for five dollars, Amazon makes two fifty. The owner of the website makes two fifty. I don't feel bad. He's a good guy. Lives up in New Hampshire. Just wasn't into baseball writing anymore. Um, so you're giving him two fifty. You're not giving me the two fifty. But again, fascinating book on minor league baseball. So I appreciate mm-hmm. you bringing that up. It's been a while since I talked about that. Okay, we once
1: again want to thank Michael Lords for the past three days. Great conversation. Great insight on the Tampa Bay Rays stadium and attendance issue. Hopefully we'll have something resolved within the next couple of years or so. That wraps up this edition of the Locked on Rays podcast. Remember to tell your smart device to play the most recent episode of the Locked on Bets and Locked on MLB podcast. Hope you all have a wonderful day. Stay safe and we'll talk to you tomorrow.